Hello and welcome to episode 2 of the Speak Easy Project Podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Maitan. For today's episode, we'll get the scoop on rooftop solar PV systems and learn what it can do for our homes and businesses. Listen to my interesting chat with Quintin Pastrana of We Energy Power Pilipinas to learn more. Enjoy the show! Speakeasy Project is a podcast that covers the business topics that matter to you today. Listen with ease to authentic conversations with thought leaders and industry experts to learn about the key issues, insights, and trends that could impact your daily life. Join your host, Jay Gottmaitet, and get down to the essence of what you need to know. So the solar sector has been established in the Philippines for several decades now, but after the passage of the Renewable Energy Act of 2008, That's when the industry really took off. And that's why you see a lot of these large-scale solar farms sprouting all over the country. 2013 was also an important milestone in the sector with the issuance of net metering rules and interconnection standards. These basically allow households and businesses to install solar PV panels on their rooftops to generate power for their own use and even save money on their electric bill. So what has happened since then? I have the power to choose clean, renewable energy and save money on my electric bill. Why aren't these solar PV panels all over the place? After 8 years, I can't name a single person who has a solar PV panel on their rooftop. When I look out the window, I don't see any of my neighbors have it either. Is there a lack of public awareness or something else? Joining us today to answer some of these questions is the president of We Energy Power Pilipinas, and the Head of Business Development for We Energy Global, my good friend, Mr. Quintin Pastrana. Hey, Jay. Welcome to the podcast, Quintin. Glad to have you as our guest. Really happy to be here. Thanks for having me over. Quintin, give me the speak easy on rooftop solar PV systems. What's unique about it and how do these work? Yeah, thanks. Uh, and just for context, the We Energy Power Pilipinas and We Energy Global, that's uh, one of our verticals, right? So one of our businesses, we, we definitely uh, are in the more advanced engineering type uh, orientated businesses like microgrids and solar farms and even other renewable energy sources. But it's a, it's a very basic industry, very normalized now as, a, as, a, as an option for uh, industrial and commercial and even residential consumers. But basically, it is a plug and play, I could say already a plug and play type industry where you can get that technology with a reliable provider, we're one of those providers, and you can have it installed on your rooftop, which then would allow you to generate enough savings as a function of the, the kind of rooftop and orientation that your house or your building has uh, and the amount of sunlight you have in, during the day. And since we're at the equator or close to the equator, if you look at solar, um, what do you call it, solar technology and with solar mapping technology, Uh, like uh, PVSol, for example, which we use, it is optimized solar radiance in terms of we get where, get where you can harvest free fuel and transform it into electricity for your homes. And effectively, it's a very simple setup in terms of a system wherein you have the solar panels, the mounting structures that hold it in place. They're uh, installed on your rooftop and uh, you have an inverter that converts it into usable electricity. And that goes directly into your system and it's integrated into your system where if you can generate from solar, your house 
your appliances or your factory or your commercial building, your servers and all that will use solar to the extent that it's available and then switch to the grid. We're assuming that you are in, for example, a, an area with a distribution utility like Meralco or, or Sepalco or Iselco uh, in the provinces or, or Beneco up in Baguio, for example. And then the power reliance goes back to them or the grid or, the, or your standard providers. If you, for example, you're not within a grid, let's say you're off grid, you can use solar rooftops just the same for a part of the day where there's sun. And then you can uh, offset that with a hybrid system where you can put a battery in there to make up for the gap. And then you can also put a generator system just as a backup. So you have continuous 24 seven electricity. So again, it's a contingency approach, but for people who live in cities, it's a, it's a fairly plug and play type opportunity. And you know we've seen clients save from between 30 to up to 70% of their usage for the grid uh, with their own power uh, through solar. Those savings could mean a lot. No, absolutely, and and it's you know, and even for the more sophisticated, especially the the uh, investors, and then and this is language that anybody can learn. Is if you look at your internal rate of return, which is basically what you would get um, for this, you know, you typically in the double digit range between twelve to even up to the high twenties, twenty percent. So that's you know certainly better than than certain you know investment classes like you know stock markets and and whatnot. Certainly better than a bond. And so if you think about it, the investment returns are comparable. So you look at that as, a, as, a, as another plus where it's not just savings, but over the life of the project and life of projects usually 25 years because that's the commercial life of a panel. Um, that would allow you to get that, that investment return. And then your ROI or your payback period wherein you actually get your money back, uh, that ranges between five to seven years on average based on our consumers. And that's also good because then you make your money back and everything else is free after that. And, and then you calculate your, your returns and you say, okay, this is a positive investment over and above the environmental and sustainability considerations that many of us have now. Quintin, let's talk about the local solar industry. Why are the rules on net metering important? Well, yeah, thanks for that. I, I, I really think that this is a very, this is where the rubber meets the road, Ikanga, and why the solar industry or the solar usage hasn't picked up significantly as it, it has in other countries. It really is a function of the regulatory environment and to the extent that the rules were written for whom, right? So if you think about, if you think about um, net metering, for example, net metering is only allowed for installations of under 99 kilowatts, roughly. So it's not the same as in you know, for example, Japan or Germany, where it goes up to it goes up to even nine megawatts. So you can actually, you know, export your excess. Let's say you had a rooftop that was larger, and you have more um, supply than you have demand. You can typically get that out there and export it to the grid, and they would pay you back a healthy rate. Here in the Philippines, the way it's written, I suppose that's the way Philippine laws are written. Candidly, is that the ones with more lobby money tend to get their provisions in. So you have a very diluted, not pro-consumer type legislation so far, wherein you're limited to 99 kilowatts per installation. And then secondly, the utility pays you, you know, a very reduced rate equivalent to 
you know, a, a discounted generation rate, that doesn't make it worth exporting to the grid. So there's no financial incentive for you to do that. In fact, your internal rate of return would go lower uh, if you were to build for the sake of exporting. And that's typically in Japan, they, they build for the sake of exporting because you get a, a cash back or a net back and, and, and that's a discount on your bill. So at the end of the day, it works for countries like Japan and Germany, which are at the forefront, the very mature solar markets, very empowered consumers. Whereas here, uh, the utilities have had their sway uh, for two reasons. Number one is they, you know, they 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 have limit they they've limited you to do that. And secondly, let's assume you were in uh, a contract wherein you actually put put solar. They have so many requirements for you to fulfill that can take up to months and maybe even a year. Uh, to be able to comply with those technical requirements, which are not written in the law. So there, you know, if you were a trade expert, for example, and and this is what I took up in school, is that, you know, in terms of international trade, there are these things called tariff barriers and non-tariff barriers. This is the equivalent of a non-tariff barrier on the consumer side, wherein, uh, well, to do a net meeting arrangement, you're going to have to go through all these tests. Uh, even if you were self-generating, which means you would just rely on the grid just the same and not an export you would have to get a distribution impact study from utilities some of them don't even know how to do a distribution impact study that would take months to do and then out then and only then can you apply your system to the energy regulatory commission which will grant you your license to operate which is a certificate of of commission and 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 and, and that in, in a sense is the easy part because they're quite predictable there the guys at the erc are quite fair about it, but when you get the when you get the distribution utility involved, and you can understand this, Jay, because at the end of the day, if you think about writ large, how much they would lose in terms of market share. Let's say the numbers I showed you earlier were true, that if a building were to save 30 to 70 percent of its uh, energy needs and not rely on the grid or the distribution utility, you multiply that over the number of buildings, those reliable customers in the grid. And you can sense the loss that these distribution utilities will feel if they if they're not able to slow down or prevent people from doing it. Or they could set up their own companies, like some distribution utilities you're doing now, so they themselves can take the market as well. So you, you can tell there's a lot of uh, gray areas that are taken advantage of by the powers that be that don't make it easy for a consumer, let alone a developer. Uh, to have a level playing field for themselves. So that is the bad side out of it. Having said that, the reason why there's resistance is because this is so much of a good thing because other countries have done better, other consumers in other, other countries have done better. Uh, it'll be important to know that there is a way out. It's just that I think there has to be political will for the regulators to come in and say, hey, the law was designed to make sure that consumers are empowered. So please stop being bureaucrats about it we're not talking about the regulators, but the utilities, and allow this to happen without too many technical and you know sorted requirements that are more than that are more than necessary. Let's get back to the 99 kilowatt requirement. Compare that to the usage of a typical household. Well, a typical household, you know, you know, and you can range from a small cottage like I have in Laguna or in Ilocos that will probably go up to five kilowatts with just a few lights uh, and a refrigerator. Uh, to maybe a 20 to 25 kilowatt uh, requirement per household if you have a few air conditioners and a couple of refrigerators. So yeah, that would really depend on the usage. 
So houses would definitely come in within this net metering arrangement. The difference though, is there's not as much scale because um, you know, it's, still it's still relatively expensive, especially now that the economy is not doing so well. Not a lot of incentive for people to actually go and install their solar you know, inside. And, and even if a developing developer or a renewable energy company were to come in and give you a financing arrangement, because the financing arrangement means that the you, the company will take the risk and not you, your internal rate of return very much goes down. Your savings shrink as well, and your payback periods increase in time, uh, which means that you're not taking the risk they are, and, and that's so it's a risk it's a risk reward ratio if if as it were. So so yeah, I mean solar is definitely available for households. There's an incentive to do that, but if the utilities keep up their behavior of making it a lot diff more difficult to do this, like we have in a northern city that starts with B and ends with an O. And you'll see that the utility there will give you so many reasons not to do it. That's what they're doing with our current client who's complied with every single regulation. And there's always a new regulation uh, that they've come up with, a new technicality, a new standard that really deters them from doing it. But we're, we're determined to do that. And our client is very happy to do that, to be the pioneer. But it really is a lot of resistance from the powers that be because rightfully so, they are losing their market share. Okay, so what solutions are you looking at? Well, one is I think we're we're definitely going to be communicating to Cong in Congress. Uh, you know, Senator Gachalian, for example, in the Senate Energy Committee, it is a fair and and very reasonable body to talk about. They're really pro-consumer and pro-reform. So hopefully, uh, you know, I, we and even our competitors are are con contacting them now to let them know that it's not a level playing field, and there is a there's a lot of friction with regard to that. Secondly, the Energy Regulatory Commission, where we will we'll have a proper chat with them to find out, you know, how they can ease on these additional regulations or after-the-fact regulations that beyond the ERC regulations, which are quite stringent enough, the utilities tend to, to add more and more and more requirements, and, and and that deters people from wanting to put solar to begin with. So that's so that's so we have to talk to the regulators because, you know, I don't think. As much as we have friends in the utilities who run them, I think it's in their it's in their interests not to be cooperative. So, is there a unified position among solar players? I think it's getting there. So, I would imagine this year would be the year where we would compare notes towards finding a way to you know to overcome these entrenched interests and do that. I and mean, this is all for the sake of the consumer. But like I said, it's a it's a it's it's political will. And uh, under this current environment, political will for reform is quite challenging. So we'll, we'll still give it a shot. Kindi, let's take a step back. You mentioned earlier that there are financial benefits to installing these types of systems in their rooftops. What are the other things they need to consider? Well, I mean, certainly, I mean, money is, is very important. And you know, the numbers will get better, especially as solar technology improves over time. And at the end of the day, you know, even battery technology gets, gets more inexpensive. And, afford, and it gets more affordable. So I think uh, primarily it's money. If your investment returns tend to be the high double digits, it's definitely investment to put through. Uh, secondly, um, the environmental benefits, obviously. I mean, it's something that if you had a family, uh, like your daughter, for example, I mean, the fact that if you, you know, if you put something in, if, if, up in a building you own or, or your future home, and you'll see that, oh, you know, we put these solar, in the, it's, it's a great educational tool. You know, like for example, the way we do it with our clients is we actually give them a free LED 
uh, L- the LCD uh, board in 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 a TV uh, to to use it as a dashboard, wherein our program and uh, Internet of Things platform will show you how much you're saving every day, how much solar is being generated, how much CO2 is being offset, what the equivalent is in terms of forests, in terms of you know um, appliances per year, in terms of carbon sinks. I mean, those things are you know you think they're intangible, but they really make a difference for especially the younger generation who are more conscious. So certainly the environmental angle comes in. You are adding to the movement that is helping climate change mitigation and adaptation. So that's the second one. Uh, And then thirdly, I think it's just, you know, it's part of the aesthetics as well. I think if you think about the aesthetics and the value of homes and buildings, you, these are assets that you put on top of otherwise drab, and self-same rooftops. So if you have that in your, you know, in your in your asset pool, which is insured also, it improves the value of the building. It improves the aesthetics. It improves the market value of the building. We've also seen it, for example, with a client of ours up north. They're planning to put an entire mixed-use community, but in the beginning, in the in 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 the in the in the promenade or the driveway through the entrance of the village, they will have a solar array. That obviously is for economic reasons because the utility there is quite expensive. So they will have cheaper solar power and clean solar power. But the fact is they understand it's a marketing tool also because if you were to drive through the roads, going into the gate, through the gate and, and, and getting into your homes to have a nice set of solar arrays and farms in front of you, as opposed to trash or talahib or whatever, is actually an aesthetic uh, value, and it improves the property value alone. Not would st- not even to talk about the savings that you'll get uh, from being a residence that relies on solar power because you have what we call a microgrid, and that's uh, that is under consideration, and hopefully this year will be under development too. So there's the economic part for sure. There's the environmental part, which is just as important, and then there's this aesthetic sustainability lifestyle which all boils down to the environment and to cost cost savings and economics as well so yeah it's a win-win for everyone so what if we want to have this system in our own place already what type of space do i need yeah um you know i mean the rule of thumb and again you, you can refine this further assuming that you have a rooftop that is uh, angled properly, let's say, you know, between it's whether it's flat, which we can put an, uh, a mounting structure that's angled or up to 20 to 30%, that's a doable rooftop. If the orientation is north to south and you have a clear rooftop, that rooftop, assuming, you know, Chetris Paribus, that rooftop would, if you had around 600 to 650 square meters, uh, that would be good enough for 100 kilowatts. And then if you have 1,250 square meters, then you know that would roughly be enough for 200 kilowatts. So that's typically your rule of thumb. Um, and uh, and then again, it has to be you have to have make sure that your rooftop can take 20 to 25 kilograms uh, per square meter for the load bearing, uh, and that your trusses and your purcells are are are, are of buildings good building standard, which I assume they would be according to the building code. Then it works out really well. Uh, then you're ready. You're ready to take solar. So how long does the entire process take? Yeah, uh, well, uh, good news is that uh, without regulatory uh, constraints, you pretty much have a free hand in doing something right at the least amount of time. So say, for example, you and I were to come to an agreement, we sign our contract, 
we sign our equipment supply agreement, we sign our, our technical services agreement. It would just take around a month to procure because we would have to procure materials from the best places around the world, which conform to the technology that is the latest. And like for example, panels have to be tier one, which means that they're triple warranted. They will last 25 years and beyond. You know, inverters have to have the same kind of things. Inverters typically will last 10 years, but it's one of those things that they have to be insurable and, and of top-notch quality. So those are usually imported around the world. So let's say that we got we get that together. Even the mounting structures have to be strong enough and light enough to withstand typhoons, category five, you know, uh, signal number five, signal number three and beyond, you know, category five or six storms, which are basically over 250 uh, kph, which is one of the case in Tugigara where we have one of our solar uh, installations. Once you have all those uh, supply chain things, that's the, the critical path. That will typically take from four to six weeks to import and get to you to the port and get to your site. The installation process only takes between, you know, let's say two to three weeks, a month tops. And then the, the synchronization is about a week or two to make sure that it works, that your generators are also on standby to fire up just in case there's a brownout. We have, we have the utility representative, the city engineer there to make sure that it's, you know, that it, they, it that is synchronized so that when, when solar dips as it does uh, when it's close to the evening, then it, it goes back to the grid. So that's synchronization for the power management system has to be tested. Well, that would typically take between, I'd say two months to two and a half to three months. And that's it. And that's for a normal, that's a, for a, let's say a hundred kilowatt size thing. And definitely sooner especially if we get the supply chain right. But again, we tried to do a parallel path with the government approval process and working with the utility, which tend to, tends to take a little longer. So assuming there is no interference, uh, which is really where the pain point is, you could have a system within two to three months. Hey, that's pretty quick. People should look into this. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Kintin, let's bring out your crystal ball. What would the sector look like five years from now? You know, it's uh, it's time goes by very fast, but you know, as you know, with Moore's law and all these technological advancements, and a lot of these investors and 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 scientists and 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 tech folk trying to get very very, you know, uh, get their extract as much value from all these inventions and innovations, you're gonna see a number of things. Number one, solar prices will definitely go much lower as well because the cost of manufacturing panels and using new technologies that are optimized alone will be very good. Like for example, there's a shift already as we speak from polycrystal into monocrystal, monocrystal being the more uh, advanced and more efficient, uh, higher yield um, you know, uh, technology. So that that is gonna be the norm um, and it already increasingly is the norm. That is going to help um, improve efficiency and therefore in, ter in, in, in terms of getting more bang for the buck. That will improve your inter internal rate of returns and your and your ROI. So that's that's the first thing. Materials will be a lot more available, so that I think will be helpful to get more manufacturing and, and put the economy to scale, which means that costs will go down. So if costs go down, returns go up. Now the other thing about costs is that's not just for uh, the solar panels, but for the batteries and the inverters. Now inverter costs are going down as well. And you know, that's the smart part of the system. That those are the, that's the brain of the system, so to speak. And that that, that churns out, you know, uh from you you're looking AC and DC, right? That's what it's not the band. That's actually the oh, that's the that's the current 
amplitude that you that you you need to run your appliances and that conversion happens uh, because of those things so that will be you'll have more uh, efficient uh, longer lasting inverters but it will last likely last longer than 10 years and will be less ex less expensive so that is going to happen as well and then you also look at potentially batteries getting cheaper um, projections have shown I think Irena and other uh, global energy think tanks are saying that the rate of innovation for batteries and storage systems and plus innovations like from the other companies that you know very well, um, the, the cost of batteries will in the next three to five years will likely go, you know, it'll be going down by 50%. So at the end of the day, it might even be cheaper. It might even be cheaper to put up a system where you have batteries so that you're eating into the actual needs uh, to get to to rely on the grid, and the grid typically is a little more expensive every year because you know it, it, you, electricity prices usually track inflation. So if you think about it, you will be having a flat, if not reduced, rate over time. Um, and while the utility rates are increasing at the rate of inflation or or a lot alongside it, so you really have that delta between your energy cost, which is flat for 25 years versus the 25 years of the utility, which is likely going to go up. And we've seen it historically go up anyway, uh, at least two by two, at least by 2% and some as high as 4%, which is really the inflation band. Then you really are making a business case for that. But imagine if you were to uh, lower the numerator or the cost of it, then, uh, sorry, the, the, the denominator, which is the cost of it, the base, you would really make a lot of money uh, because they would be cheaper, especially when the batteries go down then you can extend the life of your system by more than just eight to 12 hours. Then you can actually go, you know, close to 24, maybe 16, you know, and, and then up to 24, depending on the battery efficiency. And then you would rely less and less on the grid, which as I can tell you the next five years, that's a crystal ball prediction, assuming our leaders in the country are very consumer focused rather than special interest focused. Because if that's the case, if that's the latter, then even if innovation is bound to always triumph, it will take a lot longer in this country if there's no political will to fight for the consumer so they can have as many choices as the other consumers are having and enjoying in other countries. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of promising technology with lower costs and higher returns and more innovation and definitely internet of things. You're gonna see a lot of things on the internet. So from your smartwatch, you can see how your solar system is producing even if you're halfway around the world. So those things are happening. It's just, again, the question of will the regulators and the special interests or the incumbents where, who are a threat of losing market share, how will they respond? I like what you said about battery technology. That could be a game changer. Absolutely. You know, you're seeing it in the large solar systems because of the economies of scale. So you definitely have, will have cheaper unit economics from that end. But even on the smaller uh, you know, smaller size systems, they will, you will feel that innovation come down. And, uh, and, you know, the other thing that's important, like maybe this will happen in five, maybe it'll happen past five years, maybe within 10 years. As you know, we have, uh, we've commissioned a study with, um, you know, with the Dartmouth Business School um, out of uh, the talk business school out of Dartmouth University, one of the top business schools, to reach to really understand and develop a solution wherein you can blockchain the energy 
uh, and record in a ledger. So you were able to trace and track it so that eventually once the carbon market gets resurrected or becomes more viable, we're in the prices of carbon credits or carbon certificates if you're doing it on a bilateral basis between buyer and the buyer and not the old global market that failed like the last 10 years, you will have an opportunity to even sell those credits to countries and, and, and companies there who cannot comply fully with law to, and to buy those credits instead as a means of compliance. So that will increase your internal rate of return. But that's only possible if you're able to trace the electrons. And I think with that Dartmouth study that we energy put together, it, it actually shows that it is possible to be able to track and trace and ledgerize these, these, uh, these, these, these uh, electrons so that you can claim that as an asset for you to trade. And that's the exciting part. There's just so many things you can do by owning uh, a system or investing in a system wherein the asset is clean energy. Definitely exciting times for the industry, Kintin. I guess it's not just a matter of technology, but a lot of regulatory challenges for this industry in the Philippines. So is it safe to say that it's just a matter of time that all these challenges get resolved? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, you know, I can't speak for the consumer, although I know with more consumer education, you're going to have more people wanting to make that choice. And the more you have the people who are making that choice, there's more of a ripple effect out there that can turn into a current, as one of our favorite heroes once said, that, that, that will sweep down the, the, the walls of oppression and resistance. I feel that in politics, just like a way, I feel that way in the energy industry. And I feel that if the consumers themselves especially with the clear benefits that are getting clearer every year that passes um, to, to get into renewable energy from an environmental and economic perspective, they will be empowered enough to convince the legislators and the regulators who, they, who are accountable to them, not just the companies, but the, these guys, that it will allow the regulators and the utilities to be a little more empowering uh, and allow the market to to take place and and as we're seeing around the world so that is going to help uh revolutionize things as you as you like to say but again it it's 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 preconditioned on one thing which is consumer education consumer empowerment uh that allows them to choose services and technologies from companies like ours it's a big if but if other countries can do it they can we can uh it's not impossible and and so i'm i'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that it will happen. Uh, and I'm quite excited to be part of that because we're on the front lines of that and we see the challenges, but we also see the opportunities and upside, especially once you see a few customers happy, then other customers will want to have the same thing. And that's going on right now with our competitors, with ourselves, with our clients, with the communities. It's, it's growing and hopefully we'll reach an inflection point wherein it is impossible to resist this. Uh, and it will benefit everyone. Let's watch this closely then. But the sector looks promising. We just have to exercise a little bit of patience. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for joining us, Kintin. Happy to have you back to talk about developments in the sector. Uh, thanks again, Jay. This is certainly part of this consumer advocacy and economic empowerment uh, that we hope for, and your show is bringing that to us. I much appreciate it and hope to be back soon. for listening to the Speakeasy Project. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time.